Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we take a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social, political complexities, and examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. On May 22, a memo written by United States Supreme Court Judge Samuel Alito was leaked to U.S. publication Politico. The memo detailed that the court currently holding a 6-3 conservative majority intends to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. This decision determined the right to an abortion for U.S. citizens under the U.S. Constitution's right to privacy. Despite the decision, right-wing politicians and groups have been carrying out attacks on abortion for decades. Certain states have increasingly tried to find ways around the decision, generally making abortions harder to get, Texas being a notable recent example but the ramifications of this potential decision are unprecedented, and if it went went ahead, would likely restrict abortion services for large parts of the country. To understand how the U.S. has gotten to this point, we're chatting today to author and activist Margaret Kimberly. She's a fa- co-founder, executive editor, and senior columnist for site Black Agenda Report. Also the author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, a book examining America's relationship with race and black Americans through the lens of the presidents. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thank you so much for inviting me. Right now, the Democrats hold the presidency, the House of Reps and the Senate. It's a similar situation to the early years of the Obama presidency. They also had power during the Obama years to consolidate power in the Supreme Court and guarantee the balance of power didn't shift into conservative hands. Knowing that conservative forces have been really waging a war on abortion rights since Roe v. Wade was first passed back in the 70s, how much blame should the Democrats shoulder for failing to pass legislation guaranteeing this right into federal law? Well, I think all of the blame goes to the Democrats. Uh, In fact, when Obama was president, the Democrats had bigger majorities. They had a bigger majority in the Senate, what we call a veto-proof majority of 60 uh, Democratic senators out of 100. And so they had the opportunity to do it. Uh, Now the the, um, Democratic majority in the Senate is, it's just by one vote. And um, uh, with our crazy system, which makes it uh, the the founding fathers, who nobody should respect, uh, made it uh, deliberately hard to actually for the people actually to do um, what they wanted to do on their own behalf. So uh, one senator can stop legislation. Or in the case of in this case, there are Democrats who are conservative, who are not in uh, favor of uh, uh, providing a federal legislative guarantee of voting rights. But Obama had the best opportunity to do it in uh, 2009 when he first came into office. He ran uh, as a candidate um, saying he would pass the Freedom of Choice Act. And then a few months into his presidency, he said, it's not my highest legislative priority. I mean, it was very Obama-esque. He was like, well, I'm for the right to choose, but but I don't want to demonize people against abortion, but I want abortion to be rare, but I think this is something where we can find consensus, but the 
the punchline was, it's not my legislative priority. And it's just, you know, one of the things that makes me angry, not only about his lying about it, was to claim that there's some consensus. There's no consensus on abortion. You either, you either think it should be legal or you don't. And uh, this, this notion that um, uh, people can, uh, can reach some kind of conclusion together is just false. You either, it's either illegal or it's not. And uh, so I blame him, as I was not an Obama fan, I blame him for a lot, and the rest of the Democratic Party uh, for missing these opportunities. Bill Clinton could have done it when he was first elected in the early 90s. So that's two Democrats who had a good chance to pass uh, this legislation. And uh, not only did Obama not um, pass it, but he uh, ruined opportunities to get the right people on the court. You know, people on the left in the US were always uh, told we have to vote for Democrats, we don't have a choice. And the one issue everybody comes up with to keep you in line is but the federal judiciary, because the president has the power to appoint federal judges, including Supreme Court justices. So they were in power and then didn't do it. So there was a justice who passed away uh, a couple of years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was 80 years old. She'd already had cancer. Obama tried to coax her off the court instead of being quite openly uh, getting her off the court. So they lost that uh, seat. Uh, then um, a Republican appointee died. Uh, 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 what was the man's name? Scalia. Um, but Republicans had gotten control of the Senate and they just refused to... Um, uh, even uh, uh, have hearings for Obama's nominee. But there's something called a recess appointment, which is very rare and controversial. But if he cared that much, he could have gotten uh, Merrick Garland on the court then. So it's been a series of um, some miscues, but I think mostly it's just cynicism. They don't really care. Abortion is an issue that they know is a vote getter. Uh, but our needs, what the people want, is never a priority with them. Mm, I mean, Margaret, like, why don't they care? Why does the Democratic Party seem to not care enough to get this passed into law? I mean, like, yeah, like you said, even before this decision or during election cycles, Democrats kind of ask for votes, ask for donations sometimes, you know, to help them fight for these rights, for abortion rights. Is it too cynical to think they're just doing it? Um, they're just pretending to fight back to keep the fundraising dollars flowing, or is it to like keep some sort of image that they're on the side of progressive politics without actually doing anything? I mean, we all know like the you know the conservative side they have an agenda. It's um quite a evil agenda. But what, what, like, what's the reason behind the Democratic Party not seeming to care enough to take any sort of real action or or take power of the control that they have when they do have it? Well, I, I think you, you, um, you know, it's all of the above. It's all of the things you said. Uh, it's um, there. We have a, a duopoly, Republicans and Democrats, and they have slightly different goals, but they are both capitalist parties. They are both uh, parties of um, the ruling class. And, uh, the, you know, there are different sorts of groups in the ruling class, but essentially they both exist to uh, to do their bidding. I mean, that's the the you know the hard uh, truth of the matter. 
but in order to get people to vote for them, they all have different ways. So people who are social conservatives vote for Republicans and, and mostly white people vote for Republicans. A Democrat has not gotten a majority of the white vote since uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1964. So uh, the Democrats have, you know, most black people, um, uh, liberal white people, and uh, they know that we, what we want to hear. So they will either point to the Republicans as well. If you don't vote for us, you get those really evil people. But then uh, you see what Obama's priorities really were. So the Obamacare Act, it's not like health care that people are guaranteed in the rest of the world. It was really a giveaway to drug companies, to insurance companies. Our healthcare system is entirely in private hands, which is why it um, doesn't work for our needs. Um, he bailed out the banks. He came to office right after uh, the uh, uh, Wall Street uh, crisis in 2008. So he had his priorities. And when he said, this is not my highest legislative priority, it wasn't his priority at all. Uh, his priority was uh, in the military industrial complex, and they get more and more money as years go by. Most discretionary spending is, um, is the defense budget, which means you're inevitably going to have more wars, but that, that doesn't change. You know, the, during the last uh, campaign between uh, uh, Trump and Biden, one of the uh, uh, defense contractor CEOs was asked who he wanted. And he said, well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, well, we'll be good no matter who wins. We don't really care. And he was yeah. being perfectly honest. So those are their priorities. The things that really matter a lot to the people are just schemes to get votes. Uh, and, um, you know, and you talked about donations. You know, if they can raise a billion dollars, I mean, that's what most Democrats raise. Uh, it's not coming from us. It means the people who give that kind of money are the ones who are going to have access. It's not going to be uh, people like me. So uh, abortion or, or voting rights, they uh, claim they're, you know, to black people all the time, we're going to, you know, protect voting rights, but they don't bring back the Voting Rights Act. Um, which was a legislative uh, achievement from the 1960s. So this is uh, very common. It goes on and on and on with um, our lack of democracy. We, we just, I, I it may really make me crazy when everyone talks about democracy, democracy, democracy. Well, we don't get what we want. The things that mm. people want, we don't have, and we're told we're not going to have. So abortion in that sense is like a lot of, um, like a lot of other issues, like healthcare. Most people would like to have uh, a system where uh, prices were regular. I mean, it could be done any number of ways, but there'd be price regulation where everybody would be assured uh, care. And we don't have that. So um, uh, abortion is an example of a system that does not function for the people. Mm. And I'd imagine as well, like the makeup of the people who are in the Democratic Party um, being mostly, you know, not all, but mostly white, um, extremely rich, a lot of them as well. Um, yeah, I guess it's like not an issue that may materially affect them if it is um, you know, something gets passed. If abortion is overturned at the federal level, I mean, the people that will potentially be hit harder are 
poor people, people of color, um, and, you know, for rich, I guess, liberal Democrats, um, say it does get overturned in their state, they could potentially just, you know, fly to a democratic state and get an abortion or something. You know, I guess, sure. is that a factor as well? Like this? I think so. Yeah. I, I, and the states that would be most likely to make abortion illegal don't vote Democratic anyway. So mm. it wouldn't be a loss to most of them uh, uh, politically if it's the, the so-called red states, the conservative states. They, they don't like Democrats anyhow. So it would not hurt them. Um, uh, and, and not only that, but politicians are getting richer. I mean, most of my life, there were people who were professional politicians and they, you know, uh, go up the ranks uh, in their careers. But now there are more millionaires in the Senate and uh, less so in the House, but they're very rich people to begin with. So they don't even identify with us. The uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, she and her husband are very rich. They have a $100 million fortune. So no, they, and, I mean, and it's true of many different issues. They do not relate um, to the people. They have their class interests, and they don't even go through the motions anymore of caring uh, about what the rest of us go through, but they should be afraid no matter where they are if we had a mass movement. Uh, you know, when this memo was leaked, uh, people protested, they went to the homes of Supreme Court justices, which I thought was, I don't like that tactic and it's a waste of time. Um, <laughs> instead of going to the houses of Democrats in Congress who, who always talk the talk about defending abortion rights go to their house protest them tell they should all be afraid they should all be afraid that they'll be kicked out of office they'll should they should all be afraid that they'll face a, um, a new opponents but they they have no reason to fear the people that's the kind of protest that should be registered and it's that lack of activism which makes it so easy for them to ignore us and not do what we want them to do. Mm, yeah, definitely. Sort of um, back to, um, like you, you touched on earlier, um, how these supposedly, you know, democratic institutions aren't really, seem don't seem to be operating in a really democratic fashion. fashion. I mean, um, we've kind of seen with the Biden administration in particular, um, anytime it's attempted to pass any semblance of a progressive policy or reform, um, certain rogue Democrats, you know, notably like Joe Manchin um, or Kristen Sinema, mobilized to block, you know, any sort of potential uh, progress. You know, they seem to act as these sort of boogeymen, you know, these lone evils that aren't allowing the Democrats to do the things they would otherwise be doing. But, you know, would they otherwise or would they always kind of be this Manchin-like figure, you know, making sure that no change ever happens? Well, I, I think that... Um... The mansions and the cinemas are uh, the fake villains. There are a lot of other Democrats who uh, feel the same way. So, for example, the Build Back Better bill, which, which was going to be this huge spending bill that would take care of a lot of different things that would continue some of the programs that started with the COVID relief legislation. Uh, and it didn't happen. And we're always told it's mansion and cinema's fault. But I believe that they represent a lot of other Democrats. I feel like it's, you know, it's like a joke on us. Like they have a meeting and it said, all right, Manchin, uh, you know, cinema, are you willing to be the villains? Are you going to take the fall? And they say, yeah, okay. I, you know, I sort of feel like it's, it's, you know, as we call it the good cop, bad cop, they volunteer to be the bad cop, but they're all bad cops. 
and um, you know they they get to hide behind these procedures that most people don't understand. It's you know there could be a it's not veto proof. There could be a filibuster by any one senator, and the majority's not that big. And I believe the ruling class said we're not doing anything more. This is where it stops, um, and uh, you're not getting big back better, a build back better, and and that's what that's why um, things don't move. And uh, the rest of them either agree with them or are cynical and callow and just decide to go along. And we are, are, we are allowed to believe that this party is good except for these few people. And that's simply not the case. Mm, yeah, just quickly talking about these kind of opaque American you know, democratic institutions that don't make any sense. Um, Margaret, can you explain the filibuster to me? Because I genuinely cannot understand it, and I just it, it I just don't understand how this thing exists where people can in- intentionally like stop progress. Like, how is this a thing? How does it even work? How is it? How, how did this ever come about, and why does it still exist? Like, it's just baffling to me. Uh, it's um, it's it's technically it's just unlimited debate. And uh, they can prolong a debate and delay a bill. Um, and it's something that happens in the, um, uh, happens mostly in the US Senate. Um, and you need to have 60 votes to stop debate. So for example, let's say, uh, so right now Democrats have a very small margin. I think it's 51 to 49, something like, I mean, just like just barely a majority. So they would need nine more votes in order to prevent that from uh, from happening. And but but they could pass a rule to get rid of it. I mean, mm. you can you could get rid of it temporarily. You can say on this particular bill, we're getting rid of the filibuster. Does it provide any positive? Is there any reason to keep it? Like, or is it purely just an excuse for if they need to block something, they can wheel it out? Like, is there any good reason to have it? Uh, the Democrats say their excuse is, well, if we're in the minority, we can use it to stop the Republicans, except they don't. So <laughs> it's like, it's like, well, you know, I could go along with that if you ever did it. But um, <laughs> so it's a it's a way for um, it's a way for them to defend the interests of the ruling class and pretend that they don't. It also has a very racist history whereby um, in the days of segregation, if there was any effort to pass civil rights legislation and anti lynching bill, that it could be stopped. And so a lot of these things were tolerated. Um, uh, in order to um, to uh, prevent any legislation that would uh, benefit Black people. So it has a racist history. So the history is, is totally, uh, there's nothing positive about it. And, uh, you know, and, and as far as the Freedom of Choice Act on abortion, they could have a vote and say, we're getting rid of the filibuster for this vote. They could do it. Um, but uh, they they don't want to, so they don't. Mm. Wasn't there, um, I, is this true? There was like an, an urban legend. There was like this one, was it Strom Thurmond who did like the longest ever filibuster to stop some sort of like civil rights thing getting passed it and like went to the toilet in Congress or something? <laughs> well, there's something, something, that, is that I, a thing? I can't remember uh, the exact uh, um, 
I can't remember the exact, but it, yeah, it sounds yes. like something he would do. The racism meant that much to them that they yes, had to yes, spend. he yeah, uh, like... he was a uh, uh, Strom Thurmond was a uh, senator from uh, uh, South Carolina. Yeah, and um, uh, he was a very conservative. He started out as a Democrat because. Democrats were the party of the segregated South. And then, of course, they all yeah. became Republicans. But I think it was 24 hours. But um, yeah, I just Googled uh, it. And yeah, you're right. 24. That's unbelievable. Just the dedication. Yes, I know. Uh, anyway, to stop progress. <laughs> yeah, well, talking, yeah, keeping on the theme of these archaic American institutions. Um, what does this potential decision tell us about the Supreme Court as an institution? I mean, it's usually held up as this, you know, bastion of democracy and equality under the law. Um, I mean, you have, you know, various studies showing that at least, at least more than 70% of the American population support abortion rights. Mm -hmm. Yet we have this real possibility that the decision of six individuals in the Supreme Court can make a decision that would make life insurmountably worse for millions of people. So what does this tell us about the Supreme Court? Is it just bad now that there's conservatives running the show or are there deeper problems with this institution? Well, I think it is a relic, but I think, you know, as we're talking, there's so much in American politics. I mean, the, the filibuster that you have to have 60 senators or you can't get anything done. So we have a, a society that's just not that uh, ungovernable. We have a political system that doesn't meet our needs, but that benefits certain people. So it's not an accident that, uh, uh, all these relics still exist. You can amend the Constitution. You could change any one of those things, but it's very difficult to change the Constitution. It's the same thing. You have to have two-thirds, but not just a simple majority, a, a supermajority, two-thirds majority in the House, in the Senate, have the president sign it. Then two-thirds of all the states have to go along with it. So it's very difficult uh, to even change any of these things. So it's a larger problem with a system that is constructed to impede democracy. Uh, the, mm. the founders were not people who believed in democracy. They just were not. They did not trust the people. Even at the time with the limits they had on voting, you had to be a free white yeah. man who owned property in order mm. to vote. They didn't even trust them well enough to yeah. uh, have a system uh, that uh, um, uh, allowed for uh, the people to have a choice. Mm. Well, to wrap up today, Margaret, earlier you touched on the need to bring the fight back to the streets. Recently, um, in South America, countries like Argentina, Mexico, um, even Colombia, um, in particular, you know, a right-wing, highly militarized state, um, either legalized or decriminalized abortion recently. And a lot of these were won on, on the back of campaigns of numerous social groups, organizations. What lessons can people in the United States fighting for abortion rights take from these countries? Is it time um, for a break um, or to conceptualize change perhaps outside of the Democratic Party? What's the next step for fighting for abortion rights? Well, yeah, we need to look outside the Democratic Party. I think it, it has to be mass action. The, you know, the one power we still have left is the power to vote. And we need to make them afraid that they won't get back into office if they don't do the things we want, like protect abortion rights. Uh, but but you have to have a, stain, a sustained mass movement. And uh, that is something that has um, uh, people forget. That's where the greatest strides were made. But that's a couple generations ago 
that mass movements impacted legislation. Um, and since that time, and it's not by accident, we have been convinced that we can't do that again or we shouldn't do anything like that again. Uh, but that's the thing we have to remember. There's, uh, there's no change in the status quo. There's no change in electoral politics. Uh, we have to be the ones who create a political crisis, and that is what moves the needle. Mm, totally. We've been chatting to Margaret Kimberly, author and activist this morning, about the imminent potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. Margaret, thanks for joining us this morning. Where can listeners keep up to date with your writing or, yeah, where should they go? Um, go to uh, blackagendareport.com. Uh, you can see my columns and that uh, and writings of other people. I'm on Twitter. Uh, Freedom Ride Blog is my uh, Twitter handle. Fantastic. I'll put all that, all that up on fbiradio.com on the programs page. Margaret, thanks again for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thank you. 